0: Hello CTSnet friends, my name is Joel Dunning here with a very special Thanksgiving podcast. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody uh, in America and around the world celebrating it. Um, so for this very special podcast, we have got a wonderful and unique interview with Dr. Michael Mack. Uh, the reason we've got this interview is, of course, not only because of his amazing pioneering work uh, all over the world in so many cardiothoracic uh, spheres, but more particularly, uh, he is the first author of the PARTNER 3 trial, uh, which published its five-year results uh, so recently in low-risk patients so this is a huge topic it's vitally important to really all our practices in cardiac surgery so we thought it would be the perfect time uh, for you to settle down uh, on your holiday period and, and listen to what uh, probably the world expert uh, on TAVA versus SAVA has to say about this trial and what it means for you So, Michael Mack, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a complete honour and privilege to be talking to you again. We've met many times, and uh, uh, and I'm just basically such a groupie of you. You've, you've done so much for our specialty. Uh, obviously, you've been president of the SDS, president of the Surgical Foundation for Research Education, president of the SDS uh, at the Southern. Uh, you've done the Excel trial. You've done you've done the Syntax trial, and, and now the what we're talking about uh, is the Partner trial. And, and really that there is no better academic surgeon in the world I don't think than you so so thank you from all of us for your amazing dedication to getting the right answers and getting it through randomized trials which I think is so important. So, so we're here uh, on the Thanksgiving period uh, to talk to you about this absolute earthquake of a study, uh, the PARTNER trial, obviously the third in the series um, that you have started off, and, and this particular one is in low-risk patients, and it's what we want. It's long-term uh, outcomes. So maybe I wonder if you could start by just highlighting what the PARTNER trial is uh, and uh, and a little bit about uh, about what you have done. With this fabulous thing that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine.
1: Well, of course, Joel, and uh, thank you for that overly kind introduction. It's been uh, a while since you and I have talked, but if you keep talking like that, we're going to have to. Uh, I'm going to have to talk to you more frequently. <laughs> I need an ego boost like that every week. So thank you for the introduction. So the um, the partner trials were um, a, a series of trials in uh, cascading risk uh, of patients with aortic stenosis, comparing transcatheter therapy uh, with a balloon expandable valve uh, to either medical therapy in inoperable patients or surgery in high risk, intermediate risk and low risk patients. Uh, This whole series has culminated in uh, eight New England Journal publications and two in Lancet. Uh, We now have five-year results on the inoperable, on the high-risk, intermediate-risk, and now we have five-year results on the low-risk. All of those four sets of trials uh, in descending risk show that TAVR is non-inferior to surgery and superior to medical therapy in inoperable patients. This low-risk trial is the uh, PARTNER-3 trial. It randomized uh, 1,000 patients uh, that are low surgical risk defined as an STS predicted risk of less than four uh, between surgery and transcatheter uh, therapy. Uh, The results were published at one year, which showed that TAVR was superior to surgery for the primary endpoint of death, stroke, and repeat cardiovascular hospitalizations. By two years, which was published, the results which were published in Jack uh, uh, showed that the curves began to converge a little bit uh, and that uh, TAVR was now non-inferior to surgery. So what we see now at five years is that the uh, there is um, virtual convergence of the lines. Uh, the primary endpoint, which was death stroke and rehospitalization, occurred uh, in 27% of the um, uh, surgery patients and 22.8% of the TAVR patients, and that difference was almost totally in rehospitalization, all of which occurred within the first six months. If you look at death at five years, the lines crossed at three years in favor of surgery, so that the mortality at one year uh, with, uh, I'm sorry, the mortality at five years with surgery was 8.2%, and with TAVR, it was uh, 10%. Um, uh, Stroke was the same, and repeat hospitalization um, began to converge, and none of these were statistically significant. So the overall conclusion that we took of this trial is that low-risk patients have two good options, surgery and TAVR, with virtually identical outcomes at five years
0: yeah i mean what an amazing effort what an incredible achievement to get these series of studies done so amazing congratulations to you so uh, i know some people have said sort of well we we need longer term follow up than 5 years obviously there's there's converge, there's diverging uh, graphs and and obviously you've said there that uh, you know maybe surgical mortality is is lower at 5 years what would you say to people that say we need more long term data for this low risk group
1: Well, I would totally agree with them. Uh, The younger and younger the patients, and and the mean age here was 73, uh, the longer follow-up you need uh, um, to have. In the initial patients that were treated with transcatheter valves, which were all in their low 80s and had a lot of comorbidities, uh, follow-up greater than five years was not that critical. Uh, here it is, and all patients are going to be followed for 10 years. Um, as you alluded to, uh, we've begun to saw see a divergence of the mortality curves in favor of surgery uh, at three years and out to five years. Whether that will continue or not remains to be seen. Um, it's interesting that the cardiovascular deaths uh, were the same. Uh, in both arms. The higher mortality in non uh, in uh, TAVR was with non-cardiovascular deaths, specifically COVID and uh, cancers, and there's no good explanation for why that is the case. The other issue we saw in the trial uh, is that there is a higher incidence of valve thrombosis with TAVR than there was with surgery, 2.5% versus 0.2%. So there were 12 patients with valve thrombosis um, in TAVR and one in surgery. So the other important part of following up these patients till at least 10 years is to know whether that affects durability at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um- and obviously one other thing that's that, that people have been talking about is that that when when you've random, randomized patients to surgery that, that the surgeons the excellent surgeons doing these operations did discover that they had a preference to do some other procedures so so quite a few patients got uh, some revasc a couple of grafts some people got some interventions in the other valves so uh, do you think that could have uh, affected the the outcomes at all or 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 is that just part of randomization
1: so um you know, uh, patients uh, with coronary disease um, were allowed in the trial and they got randomized to surgery or TAVR. And the choice whether to intervene on the coronary disease or not was at the discretion of the surgeon or the cardiologist. Now, as you well know, Joel, most of the time you go to surgery in a patient with coronary artery disease, you're going to err on the side of revascularizing that patient. Uh, And indeed, 26% of patients in the surgery arm and virtually none in the TAVR arm got revascularization. But there are two very interesting findings uh, out of this. Uh, One is that the mortality was no different whether you got a concomitant procedure or an isolated procedure. So there was no price to pay on the front end for coronary revascularization. But on the other hand, if you compare it to TAVR, in which very few patients got uh, revascularized by PCI on the front end, uh, there was a slightly higher incidence of uh, spontaneous myocardial infarction and need for revascularization due to graft closure with surgery. So in other words, there was no penalty to pay on the front end, but on the other hand, there was no benefit either.
0: So just... Just a simple question to you now. So so right now today, I mean you're a surgeon and you do Tava and, and Surgical AVRs. You know, if there's a 73-year-old a patient in front of you with an SCS risk score, you know, pretty low at three, um, you know, what are you actively saying to them in clinic today about about their options?
1: So, you know, a couple things. You know, one is when you have two options and the results are the same. Uh, the patient, uh, uh, understandably so, is going to choose the less invasive option, and I would too. Uh, So what you have to do is look for are there factors that would increase the risk of TAVR, and those patients should have surgery. So for example, if you have low-lying coronary arteries, if you have a bulk uh, bicuspid valve with bulky eccentric calcification, If you have complex concomitant coronary disease, if you have concomitant mitral valve disease, if you have tricuspid regurgitation, if you have atrial fibrillation and are planning on performing a maze, those would be all things that would uh, uh, lean you towards surgery rather than TAVR. I, I think what the big concern right now is that there's a creep into younger and younger patients. And again, patients know they're out there. Patients come in asking for it. So, you know, the youngest patient treated in the partner trial was 65 years old. That was the exclusion criteria. And only 9% of the patients were below 70. So there's not a strong evidence base of knowing how younger patients do. Yet we have patients, and, and everybody does, in their early 60s now, and, in, and um, uh, high 50s that are coming in asking for TABR. So we don't know, uh, as you well know, um, bi- uh, bioprosthetic valves don't last nearly as long the younger that you get. Uh, two is a high percentage of these are bicuspid valves. And we know none of uh, bicuspid valves were not included in any of the trials. Uh, we know some patients do fine with bicuspid valves, but we also know a lot of them do not. So uh, I think at this stage of knowledge, bicuspid valves, especially a bulky eccentric calcification in young patients, and especially if they've got a dilated ascending aorta, they should strongly be pushed toward surgery.
0: And and I guess you're probably starting to bump up against people where you're talking more about, should you have a mechanical valve rather than a biological valve? Would that be something you're talking to more or, or as, as they go younger? We
1: always bring up the issue of, or the option of mechanical valves, but you know, most patients just don't want to take anticoagulation unless they're on it for another reason. Anyway, even with the ultra low dose, you know, uh, a warfarin that that can be used uh, with particular valves. What we're seeing more and more, however, is Ross procedures, and and I think some and uh, it is kind of uh, having a renaissance now of increased interest. And the number in the United States, although still in the uh, four to five hundred range per year, is having an increased interest in young patients. So I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, in in the uh, fifty-year-olds uh, and early sixty-year-olds now.
0: Yep. I suppose one other question I did just want to ask is some people sort of critique trials, huge, very expensive trials like this for being industry sponsored, but but for yourself as, as absolutely pivotal in this study, I mean, I, I'm guessing you'd probably say that, you know, that you still are very much independent of industry. So, so I'm guessing you would say that there is no need for a fully independent of industry trial in this area. Would you agree with that?
1: I, I think that, uh, you know, well, a couple of things. You know, this trial was done with industry sponsorship, uh, but the f- uh, clinicians in the trial leadership had total independence uh, of everything, including the interpretation of the trial. And, and we agreed, along with the FDA, uh, as to the uh, patient population to be studied and the conclusion on, on the front end. Um, that being said, it, it's always good to have trials that are not industry-sponsored. Trials that are industry-sponsored are done for regulatory approval reasons, and they are designed for the most part as non-inferiority trials. Uh, And depending upon where you put the non-inferiority margin, sometimes you almost know the result of the trial before you ever started if you put a broad enough margin there. So that's something you have to be careful about with trial design. If you have... um, if you have uh, federally sponsored trials, they tend to prefer superiority trials, which are going to be much more um, uh, um, informative of the clinician than a non-inferiority trial. I'll use as an example right now, uh, there's a trial that we're uh, involved in with the NIH in the United States in primary mitral regurgitation called the primary trial. Uh, and this is a superiority trial comparing mitroclip uh, uh, to surgical mitral valve repair. Um, and it's a superiority design. There's another one that uh, using mitroclip uh, called the Repair MR trial that is industry sponsors. So it'll be both are going to be informative uh, in different ways in terms of being able to arrive at best decisions for patients.
0: Um, and and I did just I was interested to know about about your views on the trials on the core valve as well because obviously they've done uh, excellent randomized trials in that. How how do your results in partner compare with their results? Do you think they support each other? How, how do they mix?
1: Well, I think it's a little early to say for sure. You know, the uh, uh, core valve, I, I don't know the details uh, of the core trial, so I'm a little hesitant to say too much. Uh, they only have four-year results, and it was published as a research correspondence uh, in JACC, so we don't have a whole lot of information uh, on it. So I, I think I'll, you know, wait to see what the five-year results are to be you know, um, to, to render, whether it's supportive or, or not, uh, of the partner trial.
0: And, uh, and so where would you say research in, in TAVA goes from here? What would you like to see as the next study that either you do or somebody else does where, where are we going to go next?
1: Well, um, uh, so we are right now, uh, planning a 12 nation, um, uh, randomized trial of, of bicuspid uh, aortic valve disease uh and Stephen Windecker of Bern uh, is the principal investigator of this trial it, excuse me and um it's uh going to be 10 European countries uh and the United States and Canada so we're hopeful to launch that next year uh, because you know, bicuspid aortic valves are increasingly being treated by TAVR without any evidence base at all, other than real world experience. Uh, Others would be um, the early TAVR trial uh, of asymptomatic patients uh, being treated with TAVR versus uh, observation only. Uh, So early intervention versus when you become symptomatic. And that'll be presented at the TCT meeting next fall. That's going to help inform. We know that patients uh, with asymptomatic aortic stenosis um, uh, have a a benefit with early surgery. So we'll see whether there's a benefit with early TAVR also. Uh, Other things being considered uh, would be, uh, we see a lot of valve and valve procedures now. So um, TAVR in a degenerated surgical valve. Uh, I've got concerns about the long-term durability of valve and valve. Uh, but there's not equipoise on in, on um, clinicians or patients yet to do a randomized trial of redo SAVR versus valve and valve TAVR. But the evidence is beginning to come out more and more that the long-term results of valve and valve are not great. So I think we're going to have to wait a few more years, but I can see that being a, a, another trial um, uh, that would be done. And then the other one would be uh, patients with aortic stenosis and concomitant atrial fibrillation. Um, should they undergo an AVR plus maze or should they undergo a TAVR plus um, a catheter-based ablation? So those are just some other uh, fertile areas for research, Joe.
0: You're going to be busy for the next twenty years for these. Well, uh, I don't know it's like if it's
1: beautiful. going to be me. I don't. But uh, they all need to be done.
0: Yeah, so, and th- so the one you pointed out just then, which was the do you do a valve involvement, or do you go and do a surgical AVR in a failed TAVA? You know, it's really pertinent. I've certainly had lots of people saying that the number one increase in the STS database, uh, increasing new procedure is, is surgery in previous TAVA. I mean, just from an expert like yourself, do you have any good tips from surgeons that haven't done many uh, sort of removals of Tavas? Any good hints and tips? Is it, is it horrific or, or, or how should they approach that?
1: So I think it's you know, it's a couple things. So we actually uh, uh, we're part of an organization uh, along with the FDA called the Heart Valve Collaboratory, and, and we just sponsored a two-day virtual webinar of 120 experts from around the world specifically looking at this. I would say a, a couple things. Uh, one is the mortality 30-day mortality has been pretty high in those patients, about 10 percent but it is coming down as we gain more experience uh, and improve techniques how to do it. I, I think if if the TAVR explant is for endocarditis, then it can be done pretty much by most surgeons in any center. But by the time you have a uh, complex self-expanding valve that's been present many years and grown into the aorta, that's going to need a root replacement, ascending aorta replacement, and reimplantation of coronary arteries. That probably should go to a center that's got a lot of experience doing it because that is a complex procedure. Um, so we're seeing more and more of these complex patients. I think where this is going to sort out is um, it, it'll bifurcate into complex procedures and not so complex. The complex should be done in a center with a lot of experience and the mortality is probably going to come down to the five to 6% range at 30 days, uh, but probably not much lower than that in the foreseeable future. So cardiac surgery is not going away. It's just getting more complex.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's a a great a great point at which to to end this fascinating interview i could probably talk for 3 hours uh, about all these and and all your other amazing trials but uh, but thank you so much for talking to us here at ctsnet on this thanksgiving uh, period and and uh, absolutely wonderful and it's just great to have your leadership and it's really fabulous to have a surgeon at the very center of these trials so so from all of us at ctsnet and the whole cardiovascular community thank you so much for all your amazing work in this area
1: well thank you Joel thank you for all your support and thank you for asking me to do this interview and uh, I, I know you're in the UK but happy Thanksgiving to you also